Chapter Fifteen of El Dorado by Baroness Orsi, read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in July two thousand and seven. Chapter Fifteen, The Gate of La Villette. And now the shades of evening had long since yielded to those of night. The gate of La Villette at the northeast corner of the city was about to close. Armand, dressed in the rough clothes of a labouring man, was leaning against a low wall at the angle of the narrow street which abuts on the canal at its further end. From this point of vantage he could command a view of the gate, and of the life and bustle around it. He was dog-tired. After the emotions of the past twenty-four hours, a day's hard manual toil to which he was unaccustomed had caused him to ache in every limb. As soon as he had arrived at the canal-wharf in the early morning, he had obtained the kind of casual work that ruled about here, and soon was told off to unload a cargo of coal which had arrived by barge overnight. He had set to with a will half hoping to kill his anxiety by dint of heavy bodily exertion. During the course of the morning he had suddenly become aware of Sir Andrew Foulkes and of Lord Antony Dewhurst, working not far away from him, and as fine a pair of coal-heavers as any shipper could desire. It was not very difficult, in the midst of the noise and activity that reigned all about the wharf, for the three men to exchange a few words together, and Armand soon communicated the chief's new instructions to my Lord Tony, who effectually slipped away from his work some time during the day. Armand did not even see him go. It had all been so neatly done. Just before five o'clock in the afternoon, the labourers were paid off. It was then too dark to continue work. Armand would have liked to talk to Sir Andrew, if only for a moment. He felt lonely and desperately anxious. He had hoped to tire out his nerves as well as his body, but in this he had not succeeded. As soon as he had given up his tools, his brain began to work again more busily than ever. It followed Percy in his peregrinations through the city, trying to discover where those brutes were keeping Jean. That task had suddenly loomed up before Armand's mind with all its terrible difficulties. How could Percy, a marked man if ever there was one, go from prison to prison to inquire about Jean? The very idea seemed preposterous. Armand ought never to have consented to such an insensate plan. The more he thought of it, the more impossible did it seem that Blakeney could find anything out. Sir Andrew Foulkes was nowhere to be seen. St. Just wandered about in the dark, lonely streets of this outlying quarter, vainly trying to find the friend in whom he could confide, who, no doubt, would reassure him as to Blakeney's probable movements in Paris. Then, as the hour approached for the closing of the city gates, Armand took up his stand at an angle of the street from whence he could see both the gate on one side of him, and the thin line of the canal intersecting the street at its further end. Unless Percy came within the next five minutes, the gates would be closed, and the difficulties of crossing the barrier would be increased a hundredfold. The market-gardeners with their covered carts filed out of the gate one by one. The labourers on foot were returning to their homes. There was a group of stonemasons, a few road-makers, also a number of beggars, ragged and filthy, who herded somewhere in the neighbourhood of the canal. In every form, under every disguise, Armand hoped to discover Percy. He could not stand still for very long, but strode up and down the road that skirts the fortifications at this point. There were a good many idlers about at this hour, some men who had finished their work and meant to spend an hour or so in one of the drinking-shops that abounded in the neighbourhood of the wharf, others who liked to gather a small knot of listeners around them, whilst they discoursed on the politics of the day, or rather raged against the convention, which was all made up of traitors to the people's welfare. Armand, trying manfully to play his part, joined one of the groups that stood gaping round a street orator. He shouted with the best of them, waved his cap in the air, and applauded or hissed in unison with the majority. But his eyes never wandered for long away from the gate whence Percy must come now at any moment. Now, or not at all. 
At what precise moment the awful doubt took birth in his mind the young man could not afterwards have said. Perhaps it was when he heard the roll of drums proclaiming the closing of gates, and witnessed the changing of the guard. Percy had not come. He could not come now, and he, Armand, would have the night to face without news of Jeanne. Something, of course, had detained Percy. Perhaps he had been unable to get definite information about Jeanne. Perhaps the information which he had obtained was too terrible to communicate. If only Sir Andrew Folkes had been there, and Armand had had someone to talk to, perhaps then he would have found sufficient strength of mind to wait with outward patience, even though his nerves were on the rack. Darkness closed in around him, and with the darkness came the full return of the phantoms that had assailed him in the house of the Square du Roule when first he had heard of Jeanne's arrest. The open place facing the gate had transformed itself into the Place de la Révolution. The tall, rough post that held a flickering oil-lamp had become the gaunt arm of the guillotine. The feeble light of the lamp was the knife that gleamed with a reflection of a crimson light. And Armand saw himself, as in a vision, one of a vast and noisy throng. They were all pressing round him, so that he could not move. They were brandishing caps and tricolour flags, also pitchforks and scythes. He had seen such a crowd, four years ago, rushing towards the Bastille. Now they were all assembled here around him and around the guillotine. Suddenly a distant rattle caught his subconscious ear—the rattle of wheels on rough cobblestones. Immediately the crowd began to cheer and to shout. Some sang the Saïra, and others screamed, Les Aristos! À la lanterne! À mort! À mort les Aristos! He saw it all quite plainly, for the darkness had vanished, and the vision was more vivid than even reality could have been. The rattle of wheels grew louder, and presently the cart debouched on the open place. Men and women sat huddled up in the cart, but in the midst of them a woman stood, and her eyes were fixed upon Armand. She wore her pale grey satin gown, and a white kerchief was folded across her bosom. Her brown hair fell in loose, soft curls all around her head. She looked exactly like the exquisite cameo which Marguerite used to wear. Her hands were tied with cords behind her back, but between her fingers she held a small bunch of violets. Armand saw it all. It was, of course, a vision, and he knew that it was one, but he believed that the vision was prophetic. No thought of the chief whom he had sworn to trust and to obey came to chase away these imaginings of his fevered fancy. He saw Jeanne, and only Jeanne, standing on the tumbrel, and being led to the guillotine. Sir Andrew was not there, and Percy had not come. Armand believed that a direct message had come to him from heaven to save his beloved. Therefore he forgot his promise, his oath. He forgot those very things which the leader had entreated him to remember—his duty to the others, his loyalty, his obedience. Jeanne had first claim on him. It were the act of a coward to remain in safety whilst she was in such deadly danger. Now he blamed himself severely for having quitted Paris. Even Percy must have thought him a coward for obeying quite so readily. Maybe the command had been but a test of his courage, of the strength of his love for Jeanne. A hundred conjectures flashed through his brain a hundred plans presented themselves to his mind. It was not for Percy, who did not know her, to save Jeanne or to guard her. That task was Armand's, who worshipped her, and who would gladly die beside her if he failed to rescue her from threatened death. Resolution was not slow in coming. A tower-clock inside the city struck the hour of six, and still no sign of Percy. Armand, his certificate of safety in his hand, walked boldly up to the gate. The guard challenged him, but he presented the certificate. There was an agonizing moment when the card was taken from him, and he was detained in the guard-room while it was being examined by the sergeant in command. 
but the certificate was in good order, and Armand, covered in coal-dust, with the perspiration streaming down his face, did certainly not look like an aristocrat in disguise. It was never very difficult to enter the great city. If one wished to put one's head in the lion's mouth, one was welcome to do so. The difficulty came when the lion thought fit to close his jaws. Armand, after five minutes of tense anxiety, was allowed to cross the barrier, but his certificate of safety was detained. He would have to get another from the Committee of General Security before he would be allowed to leave Paris again. The lion had thought fit to close his jaws. End of chapter 15